Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about pandemics and what kind of changes to our civilization and our politics they are going to produce. With our Big Thinkers Quarantine series, we started looking beyond the immediate crisis responses and tried to map out some of the ways in which the post-corona world is going to change. In the past, we've had some extracts of conversations with different ministers, such as the Spanish foreign minister. But this time, I had the great pleasure of talking to Frank Snowden, who is Professor Emeritus of History and History of Medicine at Yale University, who's just written a wonderful book called Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. And he puts the current corona crisis into a much longer historical picture and sheds a lot of light, I think, on the kind of world that we're going to be living in in the future. So rather than doing a normal podcast this week, what we have done is put the whole discussion with Frank Snowden into a podcast format. So, Professor Snowden, you argue that epidemics like the coronavirus are a mirror of humanity. Can you explain what exactly you mean by that? Well, I guess what I would begin by saying is that I would regard epidemics, as you were just saying, as uh, real mirrors that a looking glass that reveal the nature of the society that we live in. And I think I would uh, make a contrast between two different periods. Uh, One, to illustrate what I mean, I would regard Asiatic cholera in the 19th century as the great disease of industrializing society with urban centers that were teeming, terrible sanitary structures, lack of supply of safe drinking water, a lack of sanitary regulations, lack of sewer systems, the ideal sort of environment for the transmission of a disease that is spread through filth, and through the oral fecal route, as it said. Instead, that we're no longer vulnerable in the industrial world to a disease of that kind, because the sanitary movement was instituted in the second half of the 19th century, beginning in Britain, and then spreading across Europe and North America. And therefore, there's no chance for a disease like typhoid or Asiatic cholera spread in that way to thrive in our midst. On the other hand, I would regard COVID-19 as the first great pandemic of globalization. And by that, I mean a number of the main features of globalization are actually uh, the direct channels. In other words, epidemics are not random aspects. Uh, They don't strike societies by chance and at random. They follow channels that we ourselves have created that they are able to exploit. And in this case, I believe the leading features I would point to, we can talk about them if one wishes, the great population demographic explosion. I would also say another feature is a rapacious industrialization in which 
there is the view that the sort of Chicago school, Milton Friedman view, that the economy could grow infinitely, despite the fact that the planet has limited resources. And with that went a failure to take into effect in calculating profit margins, the actual external costs that industry was creating. And so this led to a rapacious attitude towards the environment. And I'm thinking in particular of the way in which palm oil companies, mining companies, and various other companies have really led the way in deforestation. And that is something that we see leading that many more and more contacts between human beings and various animals that humans rarely, if ever, encountered in the past. And for human beings, the leading problem has been with bats, who constitute a vast reservoir of viral diseases, pathogens, that are particularly lethal to human beings, of which the one that we're suffering now is one. And we've seen a whole succession of those from avian flu through Ebola and MERS and SARS and now coronavirus. So what is happening is that we are increasingly frequently being challenged by diseases of that kind, by those viral diseases. So does that mean that our globalised world is what led us to this pandemic? Would you say that globalisation is in fact the problem? A fragmented world order in which international institutions like the WHO, the World Trade Organization, are weak and have few powers and are chronically underfunded. This applies also to the European Union, which wasn't prepared for this catastrophe and also uh, has not played a leading role. Rather, it's been fragmented by individual countries taking their own separate positions. I think we have an intellectual crisis about our economic model. We have also the fact that poverty has been a major driver of this. Poverty on a global level between the world north and the world south, and also poverty within individual countries, massing and growing inequality as well. And so we see, if you look at New York City, for example, that it is uh, ethnic minorities who have suffered most, or people incarcerated, people who don't have access to health care, who don't have insurance, who can't afford not to go to work, whose work environment is also crowded and the housing conditions are crowded. Those are enormous drivers of this. What's happening at the moment, most tragically, is the north-south divide. This is a disease that is exploiting the poverty of third world countries and the fact that there's no way to practice the social distancing, which is the only measure that we have to protect us against this disease, is impossible to practice in a favela in Rio de Janeiro or in a shawl in Mumbai or in a township in uh, South Africa. And so it looks as though the UN even suggested that this may trigger famine. And there are now 
about 250 million by UN calculations, people who are actually at risk of starvation. So we're really seeing a major tragedy and one that was preventable, at least preventable in the sense that it need not have been the catastrophe uh, that we're facing because there's a long history of calling for preparedness. And this is in fact a tragedy that has been long foreseen. Many people, governments, leaders, our healthcare systems, and in fact, most of the media seem to have been taken by surprise by this coronavirus. It seems like there's a lack of preparedness and coordination. How possible do you think it is to prepare for a pandemic like this? In beginning in 1997 with avian flu, there's been a sense among virologists and epidemiologists that we would inevitably be challenged by pulmonary viral diseases. And in 2005, Anthony Fauci, whom everyone knows, and Julie Gerberding, who was the director general of the American CDC, testified before Congress. And what they said was chilling now in retrospect. They said, if you lived in the Caribbean, meteorologists could tell you that a major epidemic, or rather hurricane, was inevitable. They couldn't tell you the date, and they couldn't tell you the force of the winds, but they could tell you that if you didn't prepare, then that was a major problem that whose consequences you would suffer. They said it's precisely the same with medical science that can tell you inevitably that an epidemic of major proportions is inevitable looming in the not distant future. And if we aren't prepared for it, then we will suffer terrible consequences that could be prevented. Unfortunately, the world seemed largely to have ignored that warning, which is one of the main reasons we're in the position we are today. That is to say, we've practiced, as Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization says, practice around the world of feast and famine. When SARS broke out, there was moment of funding, of recognizing that we must have uh, in preparedness plans. Uh, they were drawn up, and then the funds were cut, and that's been the story ever since. Around Ebola, there was at that time, again, a furry flurry of spending and preparedness, and then that lapsed again. And we see that by the time this pandemic began to challenge the world, that uh, we had retreated around the world into national bunkers, which is exactly what Dr. Tedros would warn about, because microbes don't respect national borders. And instead, uh, we didn't have international cooperation. There was no also preparedness of health systems with surge capacities and all the rest. So I would say that uh, we're now suffering a pandemic that has been long foreseen, that we didn't prepare for, that is something that relates to our nature, the various features as a global society, a globalization that has been unregulated. And I think that those are major drivers of this pandemic. And I think that it's entirely important that major changes be taken, um, not only to overcome this pandemic, but there's no reason in principle to think that this is the last, 
that there will be other challenges. I'm not forecasting death and doom. I'm forecasting challenges. And my great hope is that the world will be prepared when the next one comes so that we don't relive this experience of being caught without any adequate preparation at all. That was an amazing description of how we got here. One of the things which is great about your book is that you talk in many ways about how the modern world was made through responses to, to pandemics and some of the kind of big social and political and economic responses which they've unleashed. Could you talk a bit about what, maybe just give a few examples to people here about how some of the kind of economic and political structures that we've had have been produced by earlier pandemics and what you think we might be able to expect as a result of corona in terms of these big civilizational changes? Yes, absolutely. I think the impact of epidemic diseases has long been underestimated. And I think that we're now about to see the way in which it will be important, essential, and inevitable that there will be fundamental changes in the way uh, that we govern ourselves. This is not something that's new. If one goes all the way back to the plague of Athens, one could say that Western civilization was very much transformed, as Thucydides tells us, in the Peloponnesian War by the plague of Athens that caused, if in the classical world, a geopolitical shift because it devastated Athens. Sparta invaded the area Attica in which Athens was situated, and the city was flooded with people seeking refuge, and the conditions of health and hygiene became catastrophic as the city doubled in size, and people were sleeping in the Greek temples, and soon this was killing people en masse. Probably it was typhoid and a second disease as well. It caused the defeat of Athens, Therefore, the rise of Sparta triumphing, it also meant the triumph of Spartan authoritarianism and the demise of Athenian democracy. Pericles himself perished of the disease, and it meant the destruction of belief in the traditional values of Athenian citizens, and in particular, their religion, because Athenians no longer believed that the gods were listening to them. They felt they had been deserted. So we see every aspect of ancient classical society being profoundly affected by the passage of this disease. I would say another major global event, if you like, of significance would be the fall of Rome. And I would never say the fall of Rome was caused by disease. I would say by the fifth century, it was teetering. And uh, that was for reasons like domestic economic crisis, corruption, internal factions, and civil war. There were lots of reasons, but here's something to think about, because this was also a time of great climate change. It was a time of seismic activity and volcanic activity, rising temperatures, therefore, greater rainfall, ideal conditions for Uh, mosquito numbers to rise inexorably. And there was the introduction of the worst kind, that is falciparum malaria into the peninsula. And now scholars have traced that. Uh, It's possible to document through archaeology, the desertion of villas and towns, and in particular, DNA evidence from cemeteries of the period have documented that. And that's exactly 
a disease of that kind that would unravel the economy, that would unravel the recruitment of the Roman legions, that would lead to demoralization, that would destroy the economy. Ronald Ross once said, those whom malaria does not kill, it will enslave. And what I want to say then is that it was just that kind of disease that helped, if you like, administer the coup de grace to the Roman Empire. Well, coming forward in time without very, very quickly, I would say that the Black Death had the bubonic plague that struck Europe from the 14th century, Western Europe, through the 18th had a profound influence also on every aspect of life. Many of the features of that can be seen today. An example would be that, the and this began in the Italian peninsula, did something that's lasting, which is the construction of a public health system to protect themselves. Now, this had consequences that we see today. I'm thinking of social distancing of quarantine. Quarantine is even an Italian word for 40, because it was 40 days that people were kept in lockdown, as we would say, that people were also locked down. There were uh, sanitary cordons around cities. Plague hospitals were built. Emergency administrative structures we would call boards of health. They called them health magistries at the time, and that meant the powers of taxation, police and military, naval powers uh, to make the system work, great bureaucracies and administration. So all of this meant the rise of public health as a discipline. It also helped to mold this centralization of power, the emergence of the early modern state. And so I would say that plague had that influence as well. And then by devastating, killing nearly half the population of Europe, it also had a break on demography and growth of population and therefore on the development of the economy. And the triumph of a plague was precondition for demographic growth and the coming of the industrial revolutions. Do you think it's overall necessary to change the way that we live, the globalised world? Or can we go back to life as it was before the crisis started? So I want to say that although pandemics have this capacity for changing everything about our lives, uh, they have not in every case done that. And that's amazing with the Spanish influenza. We had a mortality of perhaps 100 million people. And so despite that, its memory has only been revived 100 years later at the centenary of the outbreak of the Spanish influenza. It seems to me that coronavirus is poised to have ineluctably a tremendous influence on how we carry out our business, uh, live our lives, and we'll need to be thinking uh, about that as the, an enormous question uh, at this very moment. Have you got any early hypotheses? I mean, you had some clues earlier on where you were talking about the, the victory of Spartan systems of authoritarianism over democracy. Do you think that's going to be one of the legacies of the coronavirus uh, merging of the two? Or are there other things that you think could change? Do you think that globalization could end up being um, rewired as a result of the corona crisis? Here, I don't want to be indulged in too much prognostication. There is the problem that 
uh, the coronavirus, we need always, when we're talking about it, to remember that it's been a disease known to have afflicted human beings only since December, and that what is not known about this disease is far greater than what is known at this point. And we don't, there are many scenarios of what will happen as it unfolds, and we don't major questions that will be determinative in many ways of the future are how long it will last. Will it come in waves? Will it mutate and become uh, more virulent over a period of time? Will there be a vaccine that's actually efficacious? There are reasons to doubt that that will happen. Uh, the vaccine is more likely to be a tool than a means of putting the disease behind us. Those are major outstanding questions, and that will help determine also whether it really it rampages across the global south in ways that uh, seem very likely and with possibly catastrophic consequences that on perhaps geopolitical security, possibly uh, one could imagine even failed states if the catastrophe is as big as some people do imagine at this point. It's clear there'll be a lot more working at, from home uh, as part of our future, and the economy is likely to be transformed because there are whole sectors of the economy that are unlikely to remain the same. One can't imagine the airline industry uh, not undergoing profound changes. One can't imagine people taking uh, cruise liners, um, even at all, uh, in the next, uh, well, perhaps ever, but certainly in the near future. And I think that there will be uh, massive changes in the health system, because it's rather curious that we had, after the Great Depression, regulations tightly for banking, our banking system, that banks had to have large deposits in case people wanted their money right away and en masse. But somehow, we didn't feel that our healthcare system needed to have that. And so there was no surge capacity in the hospital system. And one watched and country like Italy, which had a very advanced and has a very advanced medical system, being absolutely overwhelmed by the numbers of cases and the lack of preparation, number of ventilators, protective equipment for healthcare providers within that system. And so I think we'll have to reconfigure um, the health system and think of health as something, access to care being a human right rather than something for profit. What do you mean by that? Globalization of the diseases has happened, and the only rational response to that is also to globalize the response. We need to have a world where the WHO can direct resources from places that have the equipment, the research, the personnel, to those parts of the world that are most in need of that. And this isn't just a matter of humanitarianism. It's a matter of enlightened self-interest, because as I was saying, I believe that this is also carried out within the smaller framework of the European Union. One of the tragedies of this disease 
was also that the European Union was split by the arrival of coronavirus instead of having a coordinated, coherent response. And has been very much a theme the last month or so. How can it be incentivized? Well, I hope that one of the ways that it can be incentivized is the simple calculation of what works and what doesn't work. And the point about the nationalist, the creation,、uh, we know now through economics that autarky is actually、uh, in the economic sphere. Is a detriment to the well-being of the economy nationally and internationally, and I think that a public health autarky would have the same kind of detrimental effects on dealing with globalized、uh, microbes that don't respect those sorts of boundaries. And so, I think it is the science itself that provides us with an incentive. And the question is: Will, in fact, people respond appropriately to that? And another way of incentivizing it is providing international organizations with guaranteeing them more funding. I think that it's said that the World Health Organization operates with an annual budget that's not much more than that of a large American city hospital, and I think that's a situation、um, that. Puts us as a world at great risk, and we need to provide with、um, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, with、um, more powers to to sanction non-compliance with regulations. I think that's part of the incentivization plan. You mentioned the fall of Athens and the rise of Sparta as an authoritarian regime. Similar trends, like more nationalisation and restrictions of citizens' rights, are now being seen right across Europe. Do you think that pandemics automatically push states into authoritarianism? I think there isn't a law about epidemic diseases that they all result in more authoritarianism, or they all result in more democracy. I started with the example of Athens because I wanted to show the triumph of authoritarianism in one context. We talked later lighter examples of the triumph of libertarian positions.、Uh, a good example is Haitian independence. Where the great Napoleonic Armada was destroyed、uh, by yellow fever because slaves had herd immunity and Europeans did not, and so the French surrendered. And so this is the first, the advent of decolonization.、Uh, Haitian independence was a major blow、uh, to chattel slavery, a move towards abolitionism. It meant the Louisiana Purchase that caused the United States. To double in size in 1803. So whether that you want to consider that libertarian, at least was more.、Uh, it's it's part of a geopolitical shift. So how do we know which kind of pandemics are going to have a big impact on history and which ones are not going to have much of an impact? Does it have anything to do with the severity of the disease, or are there other factors which decide whether it has a fundamental effect on on economic and social models? This would be、uh, my speculation. There is no canonical work to provide consensus answer to that, and so my own thinking would suggest、uh, the following: one is that a disease that's going to have a huge impact 
is one that lasts for a considerable period of time. It's not just the mortality and morbidity, that, but whether it lays siege to a community. And I think this is an explanation for why the Spanish influenza had um, not as great, uh, let's say, memory and impact as one would imagine by the the calculation of the mortality that it caused. And it's a reason that I believe that COVID-19 will have quite a lasting impact. There's the question um, also of uh, the mode of transmission and the Spanish influenza. I think one reason it didn't have such a massive impact was that it was a democratic disease in the sense that it afflicted everyone. It didn't spare anyone in the society, whereas other diseases have sparked more social tensions because they so clearly target disadvantaged sectors of the population and therefore lead to more tension. And I believe that COVID-19 is more of the latter target that it seems to uh, exploit the channels of poverty, inequality, and disadvantage. And uh, that will increase the uh, social tensions uh, that it leaves in its wake. Another impact factor is how it's perceived by the population. In other words, the ideas that people have in their heads, uh, whether it's seen as a punishment of God or whether it's seen as poisoning um, by various conspiracy theories by foreigners in Milan or Jews across Europe, or whether it's seen instead as uh, the disease is something that anyone in the planet can experience because they were have the misfortune of being at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or do we instead think it's somehow part of Asian DNA in some mystical sense? So I think the way in which it's interpreted by those who experience the disease, that makes a, a really fundamental difference. And then I think the, the way, the degree to which it really, uh, the geographical reach of the disease. And here I think COVID-19 is likely perhaps to set a world record in reaching every place on the globe, and therefore hopefully reminding us at the least of our interconnectedness. And with interconnectedness, our interconnected vulnerability. And so I believe that COVID-19 is really primed to be uh, with us. And that leads to the last thing, which is how long an experience is it going to be? And I think COVID-19 looks as though it's positioned to be an endemic disease that we have to deal with for the foreseeable future. So I think that makes it also, uh, it won't go away, I believe, like the Spanish influenza. It's not as susceptible to seasonality and other factors the way the Spanish flu was. Thank you very much, Professor Snowden. That was absolutely mesmerizing. We're very grateful for your insights on how epidemics have shaped the world and really pleased that you were willing to to break with the rules of your profession and actually look into the future and give us some, some prognostications. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. And this week, that's very easy. I want to recommend Frank Snowden's book, 
which might not be an easy read, but it certainly teaches us once again how much we can learn from history. So that's Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let your friends and acquaintances know about it by posting about it on your social media feed or on ours. And above all, by heading to whatever platform you use to download this podcast and giving us a positive rating and review. We'll put up link to the book, which I mentioned by Professor Snowden at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Professor Snowden and myself, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel.